As you've marked number 61, we'll use that later in the service this evening, how thankful we are to be able to gather again in the name of the God of heaven, and to do that, of course, with a great blessing of the opportunity that this really is. So many individuals who are our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world must assemble quite often under threat or danger from authorities, must do so and perhaps even secretively for fear of the very nature of what the authorities might do. And yet here we can assemble with such freedom and liberty and how blessed we are to be able to do that. As always, as we come to this part of our service, we'd like to use a few moments to reflect upon a section of the Word of God. I hope that with your Bible, you'll turn to Philippians, the fourth chapter. Tonight we'll be using at least a section of that chapter, and we will in fact give a consideration to a lesson I've entitled Practical Contentment. This next slide is basically an introductory one, and it asks each of us, I suppose, to reflect upon the following. Wouldn't it be fair to say that to be contented is truly one of the grandest blessings of life? And to those who are rather discontented, they often are beset with such problems and challenges and difficulties because it affects almost every avenue and every reality in life. For that reason, the Word of God has many things to say about being contented. I thought it fair as we embark upon a new year to reflect upon how vital this can be to our happiness, to the nature of our satisfactory consideration in life. For after all, if we're rather discontinued, it's really going to make us rather miserable. So as we reflect upon a coming year, what does the Word of God, in this chapter at least, teach us about being contented? Let's start that on this next slide with a definition. As I thought about how to define what it means to be content, in some ways it's a challenging word to define, especially in light of our desire to be consistent with the Bible. And so you'll notice, I thought maybe one of the easiest things that we, we could do was look at various passages wherein the word content occurs and see how it's used there. And maybe that would reflect in your mind and mine what really would be some good things to take out of its meaning. Why don't we then begin in Mark chapter 15, verse 15. There our master was on trial. He had, of course, appeared before Pilate, and Pilate on that occasion, in fact heard the following words from the audience. They said, crucify him. They didn't want the master released. They didn't want, in fact, him in any way reduced. Many of those who were prompted by the religious leaders wanted Jesus crucified. The text says, Pilate, willing to content the people, offered Barabbas. Now there it's easy to understand what the word means. He wanted to satisfy the demands of the people. He thought Jesus was innocent. He saw no reason in him to put him to death. And so, to satisfy their demand, he offered Barabbas. That's easy to understand what it means to be content there. It carries the thought of sufficiency. Maybe these people will count it sufficient, in fact, to punish Barabbas instead of Jesus. Maybe they will consider it adequate to punish Barabbas instead of Jesus. But you and I well remember the people would have none of it. They wanted Jesus crucified, and when I asked, what should I do with Barabbas, I said, release him. Well, look at the next example, Luke three fourteen. 
just a few chapters forward in the Word of God, but there John the Baptist was preaching. And as he laid hard the message of what it meant to be a servant to the God of heaven, there were those who made consideration of their wages. John said, be content with your wages. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes that could be a challenge. I'd like a raise. I'd like to have a little bit more funding, if you please. And yet to these who were in fact in position to be funded by and paid by the Roman authorities, they were often, you see, willing to fuss, to argue, to quarrel with, and even to be quite dissatisfied with their pay, despite the fact it was satisfactory. John said, be content with your wages. You could see in light of all those things, one more time it carries the thought of sufficiency, adequacy. May I be quick to say that on other occasions the Word of God carries a usefulness of that word much like that. I particularly like Genesis 33, where there we have an example, though it's Old Testament, but nonetheless a beautiful example of a man who at that time was continuant. His name was Esau. You might recall that Esau and Jacob had parted company many years earlier because, in fact, Jacob had stolen some things from him. He had taken the birthright. He had deceived and by trickery taken what had belonged to Esau. And shortly thereafter, given the anger and the malice that was in the heart of Esau, Jacob's parents sent him far away. It is in that light, though, many years later, they met again. Do you remember how it developed? Far in the distance, you see, Jacob sent an emissary, if you please, with all kinds of gifts. In fact, he was hoping to put to rest the animosity that Esau had felt. Because as far as Jacob knew, Esau still hated him. He still had a great deal of animosity toward him, and so he sent lots of gifts on this beast of burden and then on another beast of burden. And it's one of the loveliest scenes in all the book of Genesis. The time came when Esau, of course, approached. And Esau got up to where Jacob was and he said, What's all this stuff that I've passed? What is all of this? And Jacob said, It's a gift from me to you with the intent to assuage your anger, to assuage your difficulties you felt against me. And Esau simply said, Keep it, my brother, I have enough. Isn't that interesting? I have enough. Esau was content at that time. He too had been blessed so abundantly by the God of heaven. You'll notice on this slide then, it would be fair to say, in light of these comments that we've made to this point, be content with your wages. So is it wrong to work in the interest of hopeful that the boss or the company might reward your good work with a pay increase? Not at all. That's not what the proper application of this would suggest, as we're about to develop later in the lesson tonight. But for right now, why don't we race toward the bottom of that slide and note some pretty important observations about contentment. The first of which is this. We as Christians are commanded to be continued. Notice it's not merely a thing to reach for. It's not merely a matter to hope or to think that it might could be possible. We're commanded to be this way. 
Hebrews 13.5 says, Be content with such things as you have. Now may I say that's a strongly worded commandment. But in addition to that element in commandment, you'll notice that there it has the context of being opposed to covetousness. Don't you be overwhelmed by the love of money, the Hebrew writer wrote, but rather be content with such things as you have. Now you and I can easily see the observation. We must never allow the love of money to overwhelm us inside and out to the point where we're discontent with the physical things that God has given us. But look at the next observation. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 6, the word occurs in this context. As Paul wrote that beautiful message, he of course presented this rather powerful statement. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Now there you'll note the word basically is used twice. Content and contentment. And there might we notice how it's paired with godliness. We should be quick to say it would be entirely possible for a person to be content in this life with material things that he or she has and yet be eternally lost. A person might be content with physically little and yet be lost because he's not a Christian. That's not what Paul said. Godliness with contentment is great gain. May you and I have a cloak of godliness, and with that, the attribute of contentment. And if so, we truly are blessed individuals. Maybe that blessing can be seen in one last observation. Contentment is a powerful force in mental well-being. I know that we live in a time when there is so much mental illness. There are psychologists and psychiatrists and sociologists and others who are trained and equipped to help people with their problems. And many of them relate to discontentment. In one way or another, they're dissatisfied with some element in their life, and they have allowed that to develop within their mind and heart to the point where it has led to many other problems. No wonder the Bible has so much to say about being continued. I suppose at this point it would be fair to ask, so how do I accomplish it? We've read a lot of verses that encourage it and even demand it, but how do we go about doing it? The remainder of this lesson will be surrounded with these practical, helpful hints the Bible gives us for being content. They're all going to be drawn from Philippians chapter 4. Please again, open to that chapter with me. Let me begin reading in verse 1. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodia and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Let's pause already for our first lesson, our first application, if you will. Resolve conflict. As Paul addressed the church at Philippi, isn't it incredibly and intensely interesting that as this fourth chapter opens, the first mention has to do with two women. May I ask, what else do you and I know about Euodia and Syntyche? 
They are not mentioned anywhere else in the entirety of the Bible. All that we know is right here. We can certainly make several observations. First, Paul besought them, he beseeched them, if you please, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Apparently, these individuals had a conflict. Apparently, they were not of the same mind. There was a tension between them. There was something that caused a degree of upset character in either one or both due to the other one. A section of Holy Scripture was such that Paul admonished them, besought them, ladies, be of the same mind, he wrote. Now, this isn't only a meaningful message for women. Men need this just as much. One of the first things you and I can do that will be a powerful foundation in the reality of contentment is resolve conflict. When there's conflict in your life or mine, isn't it true that it causes the mind to be separated? It causes the mind to be distanced. It causes the mind to be first in one direction and then another. Because more often than not, our conscience bothers us when we are not at peace with somebody else. When we have some grudge against them or they have some grudge against us. When there is a disharmony. When there is not peacefulness. You can see on this slide that that particular matter is something that truly I think each of us have enough experience to say that this can be a real source of difficulty in life. It can cause you to lose sleep. It can cause you to not be efficient in your work. It can cause you to have disharmony in your own family because you bring that problem home and you have difficulty with your children or wife or husband because of it. We often allow conflict to be a strong agent of challenging our life. It's, it's easy to do, isn't it? In fact, there are agencies in our land which we are told, are masters at conflict management. It teaches people how to manage conflict. I'd like to offer that the best conflict management volume ever written is what you're holding in your hand. I'm not saying that humans can't have some ideas that might be helpful. But if we would just apply what is in the Word of God, it will assist us mightily toward the reality, not only of resolving conflict, but the contentment that might well come with it. You'll notice several Old Testament references that encourage us in this lie. Proverbs 13, verse number 10, Agree with thine adversary quickly. In other words, don't allow something to fester in your heart and mind, but rather make a quick agreement. Now, we'll see Jesus make some comments about that in just a moment. Otherwise, in Proverbs 18, 19, we realize again what kind of challenge can be brought and the difficulties that go with those who choose to allow a problem, a disagreement to fester to that degree. Finally, I've asked you to notice Matthew 5, 25. Since that one comes from the lips of our Savior, I'd like to not only read it, but to make a few comments about it. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 25. Of course, as that occurs in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus made this statement. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst there are in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Now perhaps the fullness of that verse might wait for another time because a whole lesson can be built around it. But did you note the way the Master began it? Agree with thine adversary. Do Christians have adversaries? Can there be occasions, despite our best effort, when someone may not think so highly of us? When someone may hold something against us? The answer is obviously yes. We've all been there at one time or another. Jesus said, agree with thine adversary quickly. That word quickly is not a word simply supplied by the translators. Jesus said it. If it is within our power, should we not desire then to make peace with our enemy, with our adversary, not later than sooner, but rather sooner than later? Somewhat reminds us of Paul's famous statement in Romans 12, 18, doesn't it? As much as life in you, be at peace with all men. Live peaceably with all men, he wrote. It's true, there are some who make that more challenging at some times than others. There are those who seemingly don't want peace. But you'll notice as much as life in us. Perhaps another application of that would be this one. Notice the previous verse to the one we just noted, Matthew 5, 24. Matthew 5, 24. Now this is exactly the same context, and here it says, I'll start reading in verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Let's develop that in practice. I arrive at worship services, and I then remember that a brother has something against me. There's not peace between us. I come to recognize and recollect the fact that here is a brother who in fact has aught against me. Let's read on. Verse 24. Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come offer thy gift. Did you notice then tension between individuals will impact my worship? I'll not be able to worship as peaceably, as thoroughly, as correctly as I otherwise would be if I were at peace with him and he with me. May I again say then that if there is conflict, it will impact my worship. And it may well cause that to be less than what it could be. You could begin to see that Jesus had some rather amazing things to say about conflict. Let's go back to the Philippians 4 passage. These women, Syntyche and Euodia, they were admonished to be of the same mind. May we never lose sight of the blessed power of that phrase. It is in fact impressed upon all of us as Christians. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, there's our phrase, and in the same judgment. We certainly can be thankful 
And we should ever strive to maintain an element of harmony and unity so that we here at the Pippin Church are always of the same mind. After all, we're supposedly headed to the same place, eternity in heaven. To be of the same mind, maybe it brings this verse. How should we then deal with those circumstances in which this is the matter before us? Paul joins in this discussion in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Be ye angry and sin not. Is it wrong to be angry? Oh, absolutely not. There are occasions when Paul said it's exactly right to be angry, but the point is don't allow that anger to develop into sin. And the next verse ties right into it like this. Neither give place to the devil. When you and I are angry, when our emotions run high, that can be the very time when not only is conflict existent, that can be the very time we say what we later will regret. We may well do what we later regret. And we may, may well give place to the devil. If you and I wish to be content, lesson one, based on Philippians 4, resolve conflict. But what else is in this chapter that may help us greatly? Let's read on. Verse number 3 and 4. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Another feature that will be an important part of a life that's continued will be to rejoice in Jesus Christ. I developed a few thoughts on this slide. You and I know that we have every reason in Christ to look upward, to not look downward, because with Jesus things can be positive. Look at some of these examples. What the Lord Jesus Christ offers us supersedes anything this world has to offer. Do you realize that as Paul wrote the Philippian letter, what was the circumstance in which he found himself? I made note of this later in, a, in, a, in one of the subsequent slides. But turn back to chapter 1, verse 13. The man who wrote this could write, So that my bonds in Christ... It would be easy to imagine as Paul wrote this, there were chains on his hands and there were shackles on his feet. And despite that fact, he was able to not only enjoy himself a rejoicing in Christ, but to admonish the Philippians, you rejoice in the Lord. And he said it two times in the same verse. Rejoice in the Lord, and again, I say rejoice. Despite the circumstances you and I encounter, and no doubt there are times they can weigh upon us, Nonetheless, may we lift in those moments our eyes upward and be thankful for the redemption we have in Jesus' blood, the forgiveness He's given us, and the fact that my name is in the book of life. And whatever happens to me here, I have a better life waiting. Rejoice in the Lord. Won't that contribute to contentment? You'll notice later on this slide, Psalm 27, verses 1 to 4 bring before us, and we noted this in the lesson last Sunday, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple, Psalm 27, 4. That one thing challenges us to recollect the shortest verse in all the New Testament, at least in Greek. Rejoice evermore. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 You and I are commanded along this line. Maybe one last thing on that slide then would be this. As I just noted, when Paul wrote this letter, he was not in the most pleasant of earthly circumstances. And yet, not only did he feel an element of joy, he admonished it upon the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was in a very challenging place in that the Roman government had a citadel there. It was, in essence, the local government of that section of the empire. That church, no doubt, had a number of problems due to the influence of the Roman government, but Paul nonetheless said rejoice. With that in mind, what about lesson three? So lesson one, resolve conflict. Lesson two, rejoice in Christ. The next verse, verse number 5. Verse 5 reads, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That word moderation is very intriguing. One of the things we should do on this slide is to give some thought to the meaning of that word. As you and I have learned, it will certainly be a vital part in contentment. It all begins with noting that word carries the idea of reasonability. It carries the sense of fairness and gentleness. It has also a sense of suitability. Paul wrote to that church, Let your fairness, let your suitability, let your reasonableness be known to all men. May we never be unreasonable in our dealings with one another, in our dealings with people in the world, may we never carry the thought of being unreasonable. After all, God has equipped us with the ability to reason, to analyze, to think, and may we ever strive to be reasonable. Did you note the latter part of that verse? The Lord is at hand. Why is this so important? May I suggest that seems to mean the following. Jesus could come back any time. Your life or mine could end in death at any time. We need to live every moment of every day ready to go. Heaven is too grand and hell is too awful. We don't want to live on the edge or live in such a way that we call into question the possibility of salvation. Let your moderation be known unto all. The Lord's at hand. In light of all of that, look at some of these applications. James 5.8 in many ways teaches identically the same thing. There you may recall the wording reads like this, but the sentence, the sense is clear enough. James chapter 5, verse number 8. Let me begin reading in verse number 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Doesn't it sound 
terribly similar in some ways with the idea of patience, no grudges, the other considerations that seemingly also match the matter of contentment. I would suggest we've learned three things then so far. All of them from this chapter. Let's look at another one. The fourth one on our list comes from the next pair of verses. Verse 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. It's easy to see verse 7 and its relation to our study tonight. The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds. Now surely contentment's included in the peace of God and what it would bring, but what just preceded it in verse 6? Be careful for nothing. That word careful means to be anxious, to be stressed. Are you ever stressed? I suppose all of us are at one time or another. We can so readily allow the world and things going on around us to bring stress, to bring an element of heightened tension within. Paul wrote, In nothing be stressed. In nothing be anxious. Why? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. To be grateful. If you and I are thankful, grateful for those things we have, it will redound in our heart to a sense of, I have enough. Now, does it mean I don't do the best I can with what I have, and that may well result in an increase in pay, or it may result in a promotion? Sure, it might. But even if it doesn't, I've got enough. And I'm thankful for what He's given me. And I appreciate the degree to which He has given me this. The wording of verse number 6, Let your requests be made known unto God. We rely upon the one greater than we, the one who is the giver of every good and perfect blessing, James 1 verse 17. The one who has been the controller of this universe since He created it, and who will be its ruler until He burns it up in the words of 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But beyond all of that, the peace of God is such a sweet idea. There were those of Jesus' day, and the Master told them in John 16, 13, the world will bring you tribulation. It'll bring you stress. It'll bring you tension. It'll bring you a heart divided with worry. But Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. The Lord brings peace, the world brings stress. The Lord brings peace, the world brings conflict. The Lord brings peace, the world brings worry. When you and I then give thought to practical contentment, we've learned so much already. So many things have been an encouragement to us so that we might well approach the year 2020 with a renewed appreciation for the blessing of practical contentment. It is with that one lesson remains, and we'll use that to close the lesson tonight. It comes from the next verse. We've been taking them in order, so perhaps we're not surprised that verse 8 will also join in this discussion. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, 
whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. When we guard our thoughts and we think on those things the Word of God encourages, we are far less likely, of course, to think on these matters the world encourages. And it's the world who says, get back at Him, get even with Him. It's the world that encourages us in the love of money. It's the Bible that encourages us against all of that. It's the Word of God that encourages us. You think on what's pure, true, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. And when you think on that kind of thing, that centers on the life that's wholesome and sound and sweet and has all the attributes that God would encourage and the things that He would in fact insist in your heart and mind. The guarding of one's thoughts, you'll notice on that slide, certainly will center on, among other things, what's true. One of the things that can so often cause us to be discontent is when we think on what's not true. Have you ever thought about it that way? Someone comes and shares gossip. They share hearsay. They don't know that it's true. They only share what they have heard or what someone else has told them. And suddenly we are beside ourselves pondering on what might not even be true to start with. It would do us far better to in fact dwell upon what's true, to take hearsay and what might well be gossip and not allow that to detract us from the things most wholesome in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of truth, Deuteronomy 32, 4. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. And aren't we reminded in John 17, 17 that truth is the Word of God. And so what it relates to and that which is built upon it. Finally, finally, one last thing on that slide would be this. It has to do with the presentation of what that word honest means. We all know God encourages honesty, but that's really not the word, at least in the original that appears here. The word is honorable. It relates, as you can tell, to what is admirable, what's noble, what is innately good. Do you and I think on those kinds of things? May we make a renewed effort to be content as we develop in our mind these five things we have studied tonight. You may well notice in verse number 10, Paul develops some other thoughts, but it seems to me to relate to this one here, and so we have five that I might summarize like this. We've given our attention to the blessing of contentment. We defined it, and then we turned our attention from this chapter to how do we make it so? One, resolve conflict. As you can see, number two, rejoice in Christ. Have an attitude to reflect upon a rejoicing spirit. Thirdly, be a person of moderation in all things. Reasonable, suitable. Fourthly, appreciate a heart of gratefulness. Being thankful for what God has given us. And finally, guard our thoughts in relation to what we allow to cross our heart and to remain in position there. 
I hope as we look forward to a new year with the blessing of God that we might be individuals who appreciate the honor of contentment, the blessing that comes along with it, and the kind of life and what a meaningful example we could be to others. Our world, by and large, is very discontented. And when those who are about us look upon you and I and see he or she, that's a contented person. I'd like to be like that. I would wish that I could exhibit that kind of characteristic. That in that sense, you and I would be able to be a powerful example for the things that Philippians 4 has put before us this evening. As we close this lesson, it might well be that someone would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation to in fact renew your spirit in light of things you've perhaps done or said publicly. You'd like God to forgive you and you want others to know that He has done that. And you want everything to be wiped clean before you and your God. If we could help you in that way tonight, if you will repent of those things and confess them, He's promised to forgive them. We'd be honored to pray upon your behalf toward God along that line. A song of encouragement has been selected. If we could help in any way anyone tonight in light of these matters or any other thing you'd wish to discuss with us, we'd be honored to help in any way we can. We just want you to let us know how we can and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.